Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the amazing city of Detroit. I am Dan Galadner, your host, as well as on the other laptop two miles away is Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Are you ready to um, start going back to campus? Well, I have been back to campus a couple of times already. It's different, but my uh, my office plants, most of them lived. <laughs> That's a good thing. Congratulations. Yes. I was sure they were goners, but. <laughs> well, you must have done something to them. They're holding out pretty well. Um, well they're, they're succulents. They don't like to be overwatered. Oh, that's true. That's true. So they're, they're fine. Which is good because I usually forget. <laughs> <laughs> I think our, the official date is uh, coming up soon. We're officially, unofficially, Wayne State University is accepting people and students back on campus. So we'll see how that happens. We'll see what happens around the country. But anyway, on today's podcast, it is a bit different from our usual type of guests. Usually we do talk to historians who use our collections here at the Ruther Library for their papers and articles, dissertations, or books. We talk to the archivists who work here about their work and their collections and how we push those collections out of that old brick building into the community as a whole. But this episode, Dr. Clay Walker is a senior lecturer at Wayne State University where he regularly teaches general education writing courses and works to improve the job and economic security for non-tenure track contingent full-time faculty. And he used our collections to write a paper in the journal Literacy in Composition Studies. Now, get ready for this title, guys. Life, World, Discourse, Translingualism, and Agency in a Discourse Genealogy of Cesar Chavez's Literacies. It's a mouthful. Um, his research uh, also includes uh, literacy studies, agency, and the nexus of literacies, social justice, and social power. He's actually working on a book-length manuscript of uh, the studies of Cesar Chavez literacies with a focus on literacy and agency. How many more times can I say literacy in one paragraph? I ask you people. So Clay is your atypical English professor of talking theory, and to tell you the truth, I had not a clue what he was talking about when I, when I read his paper, but when he explained it in the podcast, it made perfect sense, and I could see how it would relate to archival and oral history professions, as well as historians could use this type of theories that he's talking about with their own work, and yes, may I dare say, Union organizers, if we have a few listening, I would pay close attention because there are some things here about how to use language and talk to each other. So folks, listen to this podcast, pay close attention to what he's saying about discourse. And also he does a wonderful job talking about the early life of the great labor leader, Cesar Chavez. So enjoy. Clay, thank you very much for being on Tales from the Ruther Library. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Guys, uh, to our audience, uh, Clay and I know each other from our union's executive board. Uh, Clay uh, answers for the lecturers, and I'm on uh, the political action committee. I'm the chair of that. So, But when I discovered that Clay was actually writing stuff about Cesar Chavez, I freaked out and had to get him on the show real quick. So without further ado, Clay, 
please, yeah, this is a labor history podcast. So could you please explain your paper and the terms you use, like discourse and the whole second wave literacy and translingualism? You know, uh, you, had me, you had me hit my thesaurus there a couple times. <laughs> yeah, right. So I am looking at Cesar Chavez uh, from my primary field, which is literacy studies. And uh, literacy studies is a, an interdisciplinary field comprised of researchers in uh, linguistics, anthropology, composition and rhetoric, uh, sociology. So it's not really situated in one department necessarily. And, um, you know, I guess maybe I'll start sort of looking at some of the key concepts in the title, Life World Discourse, Translingualism and Agency and the Discourse Genealogy of Cesar Chavez's Literacies. Um, so maybe first I'll sort of take this idea of life world discourse. And to get at that idea, in, in literacy studies, uh, just to give a quick uh, overview of what the field is, you know, we're sort of interested in understanding how people read and write, how people learn to use reading, uh, reading and writing, um, how reading and writing is connected to power in communities, societies, cultures. So I take up this idea of life world discourse as a way of a way of thinking about how the way we use reading and writing in a situation is more, it, it, it sort of extends beyond that, that moment in time in that specific community. The, the concept of discourse comes from James G and he's trying to understand how our language practices are wrapped up in a lot of other things that we do. So the way he describes it is, we, all, we have discourses that allow us to get recognized as a certain kind of person doing a certain kind of thing. And uh, we, we use we have these identity kits, ways of saying, being, doing, feeling. Our ways of language is in, interconnected with the ways we dress, the way, you know, the way we talk, uh, the way we, the kinds of feelings we have. So, and so if you think about like going to a fast food restaurant and uh, being a restaurant worker, um, there's a certain discourse in there where to, to get recognized as a fast food worker entails not just using certain kinds of language, you know, like, hi, how can I help you? But, um, but it's also ways of dressing. You can think about the kind of uniform, you know, workers wear, but also ways of feeling. Uh, so like dealing with customer complaints, for example, you're part of that discourse of being a service worker is, you know, being positive when customers are really upset. So for G, he talks about how we all have a primary discourse. We learn to use language in a family, in a home community. So our first exposure to the world of having identity comes from that home situation. But then we move on to secondary discourses. This is like you know work, uh, school, place of worship, these sort of public spaces where we learn alternative ways of being recognized as a certain kind of person. And in the secondary discourse, some of those discourses are dominant, some of them are marginalized in, 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 in the way a lot of G's work is used. And so an example of this would be to think about how like academic discourse is a secondary discourse at the university. It's got a lot of power. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, if you can't you know, master this discourse, you can't get a college degree, for example. Uh, it's more pronounced for other people who where their home community is very different than academic discourse. 
which is ultimately a white English, a white upper class English. The concept of life world discourse tries to sort of break down these distinctions between you know, uh, the language of home and the language of public spaces by thinking about how ultimately as we go through life, we're encount we encounter experiences and, and we sort of blend and grow our, our ways of using language. And, and it's the, the goal with life world discourse is to think about how these, these experiences, like where we start this primary discourse we, we, we gain from our home community changes over time. And that connects with translingualism, which is um, an argument that in order to really understand language in our society, we have to think about the global connections. We wanna get away from assuming that there are dominant and marginalized ways of using language that those pre-exist. Translingualism trying to break that down. And um, one of the ways it does that is by emphasizing that we need to think not just how language is something we use in a social space, but it's something that it develops over time. It's continually changing. So like even something like academic English isn't permanently fixed. It's always in flux. And this allows us to rethink things like difference. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in a monolingual theory of language, difference is usually one of two things. Like either it's your failure to uh, reproduce the dominant form. So like you could think of like, you know, are you using the right version of there? You know, there, there, right. there, are you spelling right. there right? So like difference, if you fail to do that, like you don't have, you know, like saying like you don't have dominant English, that's like the, the failure version of difference. And then there's another difference of like the sort of avant-garde resistance, you know, to, to dominant forms of language. So translingualism is saying by emphasizing practice and time and emergence, these sort of concepts, rather than thinking about forms of power and language as pre-existing, we can also think about how we're always reproducing language. Language is always being negotiated. Even when language seems like it's just like regular academic English, like dominant English or whatever, like mm -hmm. that we're always reproducing that. And, um, and so it's emphasizing how all of us have our own histories of language, even when it seems like we are squarely situated in like these dominant forms of language, we're always reproducing them. And, and that those acts of practice of reproducing language changes our sort of readiness to act in a, in a situation. So right. this is the genealogy idea here, we're getting at that. And what I'm trying to do is sort of like, look at how can through an archival project how can we think about agency through literacy and language by looking at a person's life history there we go because it is an organic thing our life right it is an organic thing and our past practices with language and literacy as we grow up in a home situation and as we go into different public spheres all of those experiences they shape what we can do and how we do things and how we respond to situations. So none of us are you know, really born like speaking academic English or some other dominant English, you know. God, I hope not. <laughs> right. But those, those experiences have shaped the different kinds of repertoires that we learn through action. And so Cesar Chavez is an important opportunity to look at that 
because there is the oral histories mm -hmm. uh, of Chavez that were recorded in the 60s, but he reflects back on his life uh, with the Shock Levy, and that's an important record where he's reflecting on his youth and he's talking explicitly about language and experiences both in Arizona when he and his family were living on the farm, and then later in California when they're part of the migrant farm working stream. But then also in the archives here at the Ruther, uh, there's the daily activity reports that he did as part of his work in the CSO, the Community Service Organization. And that record is important too, because it gives us these small you know, windows into how he's using language and interacting with people on a daily basis. So we have this sort of like opportunities for looking at a, you know, taking a long view of his work and to think about maybe how he, the way he uses language and literacy and text and reading and writing in his life, you know, how they blend and change and extend and connect to each other. And, and that's sort of the idea of the life world discourse is that as we move through spheres, we're, we're taking things from one place and from another place and we're blending them and combining them and, and resituating them and using them in new ways as we confront new problems. Right. And I think ultimately that's what makes him successful as a union organizer is, is that ability to combine and blend different um, genres and, and strategies and ideas and ideologies. Right. So that, that's one of the reasons that you pick Cesar Chavez over the other oral histories we have. You, you had not only his storytelling, the oral uh, communication, but also his written language that he was using for the reports for the CSO. There are others like that, but Chavez has this more of like a, a romantic view of life and how he, where he came from and what he was like and who he, when he became such a, a powerful leader. Now, why don't you tell, you know, before we get into how he became a leader, why don't you tell us more about his adolescence in this life world discourse? Yeah, so um, I think his experiences really primed him for, and, and you know, my work in this article is really focused just on the 1950s, the early 1950s, uh, before he really gets going with labor organizing. But as a, as a young man though, some of the things that I found to be important were, you know, growing up uh, in Yuma, Arizona, which is, you know, this, this uh, sort of agricultural communities. There's a, it's a small town, you know, tucked away in the, the southwestern corner of Arizona on the, you know, basically on the border of Arizona, California, and Mexico. And uh, he, you know, lived with his family uh, uh, on the family farm. And, uh, and in this community, during the first decade or so of his life, you know, he was, um, you know, exposed to uh, a few things that sort of, I think there's just these trends, these things that happened in the family, I think that shaped that sort of, that primary discourse that sort of like beginning for him, the root for him. And some of that is the family talking about, you know, his grandfather uh, leaving the hacienda and building the, this family farm in Arizona. Um, the sort of that sort of family lore, you know, resisting, you know, that situation and, and, and creating a new life in Arizona where the family were 
farmers. Um, but also his mother, his mother's religion was really important. And the things that I talk about in, in my research here are um, his mother's spiritual practice and her patron saint was Saint uh, Edovigus. And, mm -hmm. and the, one of the principles that Cesar Chavez's mother uh, got from that was helping others without an expectation for return. And so, you know, in the 1920s, she would do things like feed people without asking for some work in return. People who were, you know, maybe without a home or didn't have work uh, during the depression. Um, she would have the kids go out and do things. Uh, Cesar and his, and his siblings go out and help people in the community, always without an expectation for return. And this is something that Cesar talks about in, in the oral history. But what I, you know, found to be interesting here is how that sort of connects with the, the way the family talked about um, the haciendas. And, and then later, as Cesar's a young man and the family, you know, loses the farm ultimately, uh, and they, they transition to, to becoming itinerant farm workers in California and really having nothing and uh, moving up and down the agricultural uh communities in california they they had this the family as a whole had uh, a readiness to respond to injustices they saw in the farm working scene where if they saw that growers were mistreating farm workers or uh, you know they, whenever they saw injustice they were ready to act as a family and even if one of them saw that injustice the the, the family was prepared to to leave um, a work site, which could have a lot of consequences because often their their housing depended on the the particular farm that they were working on, right. um, and they would take in families. And um, you know, after the Chavez family sort of figured out how to be successful in the in the farm working stream, they would take in other families and sort of help them get established. And that you know, this sort of orientation to um, helping others without an expectation for return and, and often at great expense um, in terms of time or resources for the family was you know a core part of their identity and these I you know these formative experiences for Cesar I think shaped who he became as a young adult and you know the person who arrives in the early fifties and we starts working with Fred Ross and father McDonald, like this is, these are the formative experiences that shape who he is as a, as a young man in his, in his twenties. Right. So this is when Chavez is in San Jose and he starts yeah. to meet father McDonald and Fred Ross. So how do he, how does he, how did he blend these repertories? Repertories? Rep yeah. His repertoires. Yeah. So like if we can take helping others without the expectation for return, like that sort of repertoire, um, that self-sacrifice and service of others and standing up to injustice. These two things that sort of are rooted in his experience as a young man with his family, um, they get extended by Ross and by um, Father McDonald in different ways. Uh, you know, Father McDonald, I think the important, the really important contribution there for my work is just, you know, get exposing Cesar to reading, you know, these different kinds of texts and to start thinking about some of the things he was already doing in a different way. Right. Um, you know, reading St. Augustine, 
uh, encyclicals, reading Sedent testimonies, uh, reading Gandhi. Uh, mm -hmm. So the cultivating that sort of part of Cesar's life is, is really important. Um, and then Ross, you know, um, helps to develop also the, the organizational skill, the uh, community organizing skills for, right. for Cesar. And so one example that I thought was really enlightening was, you know, when uh, it's actually with Father McDonald and he shows Cesar how to use the law to cite the law in order to claim um, a legal kind of agency. And, and in this example, they're working to reclaim a body. And, and so, you know, working with Father McDonald, Cesar learns, you know, sort of gets this, this experience of it's asserting a right, asserting the law and being able to help this family reclaim uh, the body of a deceased loved one. And, and that sort of extends this self-service, extends the standing up to injustice. It, you know, mm -hmm. uh, he learns how uh, here, you know, gets an insight on how the law works. And he talks about how this was a shift from the way they dealt with these problems in the past. And, you know, as he talks about this experience, the, it, it, was an, it was an incident where it wasn't just asserting the right to the hospital administrator, but it goes up the chain, eventually goes to, if I remember right, to the um, California Attorney General's office. And, yeah, it goes all the way uh, to the top. It did. All the way yeah. to the top. And, uh, and I mean, that's, you know, for anybody, that's, that's uh, uh, an intimidating experience, I would think. And it would be for me. Um, yeah. To, to stand your ground like that and to say, well, this is what the law says that we have this right. You know, one way to think of it is how his prior experience sort of primes him for this moment in a way. And that's, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do is to think about how our prior experience um, sort of culminates and makes us ready to take a certain kind of action. And, and to think about how those prior experiences blend and extend into these moments, like where he cites text to claim legal agency, you could think in one way how the experience of taking a stand for other families and putting yourself at risk, there's a similar kind of uh, contour there to standing up and saying this, you know, no, this is what the law says, we can take this body from the hospital and we're going to bury it. This, the, the, yeah, that, that's one of my favorite stories in your article about how here is Cesar Chavez, simple, uh, coming from the farms, learning all this stuff, and then taking legal action legal words and taking it all the way to the top must have redefined it must have like really just, just shown him that there's a new path of doing everything that he, he he was raised to do you know so what is what does this all mean with with your conclusion and what was the outcome of your research for for um for this yeah i think um well you know dan one thing i definitely want to connect to here too is because we haven't really gotten into, you know, even just talking about the study of the body, that's, that stuff comes from the oral history stuff. But I, I want to also tie this with what we see in the, in the archives at the Ruther too. And, you know, when he's working in the CSO, you know, it's important to note too that Cesar talks about, you know, he really started learning to read and write English when he started working with Ross and McDonald in the early 50s. And it's you know, when he starts working in the CSO, he starts working right away and helping people uh, recreate their 
their you know their own life history to to claim citizenship because there was a change in the law and mm, right helping them you know find textual evidence of their how long they've been in the United States and and their own life history so that they can show they meet the requirements for citizenship and right away his you know his first work is getting people registered to vote getting people to go through the citizenship process and that and that's another you know moment of, of where he's taking this experience citing text to claim legal agency helping people do the same thing but he's also really tracing out their own histories so that they can claim a kind of identity you know at that moment as a citizen right so what does this all mean you know i can give you two answers i think one from the perspective of literacy studies i think um offering a model for understanding how our prior experiences get sedimented as repertoire that we can use to a, a, an action in the moment. And how we pull all these diverse resources together in a moment is important. And I use this concept at the end of a, it's like being on a threshold. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we use metaphors like bridging spaces, like uh, bridging one ability to next, but it, you know, when I think about a bridge metaphor, it implies there's a, some sort of impassable chasm between these spaces. I think it's more important to think about like a, the threshold as a metaphor, threshold between two rooms is a way to think about how we can occupy the sort of spaces in between and have access to resources that might not necessarily be connected. And I think that's a key part of Chavez's successes bringing together resources that might not otherwise be connected, occupying these spaces in between, always occupying these spaces in between. You know, for example, like the Easter marches where he's combining elements from Gandhi's marches, he's combining elements from, you know, religious practices from uh, Mexican uh, Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And he's always combining things that, you know, seem to come from different places, but makes them, in a way that responds to a moment and and that sort of like occupying those thresholds is important and um you know and i think that's what allows him to be successful in you know he connects to all these different groups in his work as a community and labor organizer from the farm workers who are mexican-american filipinos uh the growers who share the same religion, but they're 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 white. They come from Eastern Europe primarily, uh, and then his his ability to work within the political establishment, both in California and then in the Kennedy administration, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of occupying these very different spaces, and then you know finding threads to pull together, occupying those thresholds is I think um, important for Chavez. And then what I try to take from that is to think too about how that's something that I know um, I'm trying to do in a way and I've always tried to do from my experience in going to college uh, as a young man. I wasn't ready for college and mostly failed and then worked you know, uh, in restaurants. And it took me a long time to figure out how to be successful as a student and then when I did, I felt like I sort of lost touch with where I came from. And uh, so I, I sort of look 
up to how Chavez was able to sort of combine these things. But then when I think about our students at Wayne State, I think that's an important element too. And I try right. as a writing teacher, try to find ways to support them to do the same kinds of blendings that Chavez did throughout his professional life. And it's a model for me to think about how to help other people move in and out of spheres of power. Um, a lot of our students don't come from um, families with a lot of material or language resources that are ready for success in college. So how can I help them get through that and to make use of their repertoires that they bring? Um, I think that's also an important lesson that this sort of offers for, for us from a literacy perspective. And then from a labor, you know, as I think about it, as working, you started this conversation noting how we both work for the union. And I think really as a labor organizer, so much of the work is just listening to people, understanding where they are and trying to help them find ways to make use of the experiences and resources they already have. You know, trying to help people find that, you know, they can occupy these spaces and re, maybe resituate the repertoires to, to respond to the situations that emerge in the course of you know, uh, working in a union. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you've been talking about with discourse and all this is I can see identifying with archives because with your last statement about the students at Wayne State, we're reevaluating and have been for a while how we present archives to students because most undergrads never even know what an archive is, right? I mean, I didn't yeah. discover archive till I was in grad school. And I was like, right. oh, this is my career. This is what I'm going to do. This is what an archive is, you know? Um, but we're trying to open up the primary documents to students at Wayne State, as well as the community of Detroit saying, here's your identity. Here is where you can relate to these old minutes, these flyers, these photographs, and then make an identification. Example is... Um, we, were working, we are working with the College of Education at Wayne State, and they bring in in-service teachers, and we tell them what an archive is. This one guy who's going into sports education, he's going to be a PE teacher, and he's going, what is history related to me? He sees a picture of black bottom kids who are posing like John Lewis back in the 1930s. And yeah. he looks at that and says, my dad was a boxer. His grandfather was a boxer. I wonder if they knew it. And he was talking about it at his kitchen table at, back home, and his grandmother spoke up and said, yeah, we all knew about this kind of stuff. And, you know, we didn't know about the photographs, but stories started coming out and the relatability started coming out, you know? So it's just sharing mm -hmm. type thing. So, yeah, along with the story is like, we're doing similar things, whether it's uh, telling our English students, you know, their identity, we're doing it with the primary documents. And it always comes to being an organizer too. All this stuff that you were talking about, this is what organizers need to do, whether it's in a union or nonprofits or activism. Yeah. The related story. Uh, where is your story and how you can relate it to others? Because once they hear an unorganized person hears the story of you, Clay, like, yeah. I was in that same situation. Now I can identify and sure, I'll sign that union card. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I think finding those, those, those areas of connection, of commonality, that's what allows you to make sort of, you know, cross those spaces that seem like our differences or or are uncrossable or really crossable once you, you know, find ways to bring them close together. Yeah, and we can see that in a lot of the art collections at the Ruther. I mean, I'd said before, we have a lot of oral histories 
And we, if we can relook at them, all the ones that we have, and kind of framework them as this crossover to the current issues going on with Black Lives Matter right now in the streets, or whether it's the rights of teachers who don't want to go back into the classroom because they're afraid of their life and the children's lives. There's lots of crossovers from the past oral histories of our, of our whether it's rank and file or from basic um, leaders of, let's say, the AFT and SCIU and AFSME, you know, talking about stuff like that. They all came from very simple areas. Everybody thinks these leaders came from, oh, they were born to be leaders. They are leaders. Like, right. Yeah. Right. I've done so many oral histories where I'm talking to someone, it's like they were raised above their father's candy shop in Brooklyn, right. you know, and they became one of the leaders of the AFT, you know. Yeah. Cesar Chavez is like that. Too. He's not, you know, he's by no means, well, I think one thing I think is interesting, he's by no means like an actual leader in a way, like he's not a conventional type of leader, you know, not like a, you know, uh, sort of dynamic, um, extroverted presence who just yeah. you know charismatically brings people together his strength is in, was always in his language and and in his ability to connect with people and problematizing this idea of leaders is important too and i think it's an interesting sort of comment you make there because you know I, sometimes people fall into these leadership roles and it's, their histories are more complicated and, and i think that's what i see with chavez is just if you just look at his childhood, you, there's no reason to think he's going to become a, a, a labor leader. And there's mm -hmm. just sort of these things that just happen to happen to him and, and how he's able to take things from one situation into another, into another. Right. Right. And that's how it usually happens is sometimes you're at the right place at the right time, or sometimes it's the, you wrote the right thing, or you stood up on that soapbox at the right time and it evolves. And if you're ready for yeah. it, it evolves into something bigger, you know, and Chavez had that, in him all along with his being from his adolescence to all this like um, mentoring he got during the 50s. So excellent, Clay. I really appreciate you sharing this with us. I think we're going to have a bunch of labor organizers relook at their work, <laughs> you know, and how we how they can identify <laughs> with people and as, as well as other other areas. So I appreciate it, Clay. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller English. Special assistants from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Did I say literacy like 50 times? No, no, only like uh, 46 times. So you're good. <laughs> you're good. <laughs> We've always said the historians will find it.
We don't have time for it. We just need to keep get the stuff out there. Uh, we're gonna have to shift that. We're gonna have to talk to you guys. Damn it, we're gonna have to talk to you guys. <laughs>